You know, sometimes I think nonprofit executive directors and fundraisers think of program officers like, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, impossible to get to meet with, and then armed with requests that make killing wicked witches seem easy. It's time to reframe, my friends. Imagine for just a moment that a program officer needs you, that you are the key to their success, that you're the folks in the trenches and your knowledge is critical to the foundation's ability to be smart strategic grant makers. Consider that it is the orchestra of voices in proposals that are accepted and even those that are not that bring to life the real challenges and opportunities in your particular sector. Now, over the years, I've heard questions like this over and over again. Do you think I should call and follow up? Or, you know, I really thought they were going to say yes, but they said no. I'm so confused. Or, are you kidding me right now? They funded that organization? Or, OMG, this application, I, I don't know how to answer half the questions on it. Or, they just said no. Could they please not just tell me why? <laughs> By the way, my guest, who I can see on Zoom, is kind of laughing quietly in the background. Today, you're going to hear from a program officer in her decades of experience in the disability space. She has actually written more than her fair share of grants, raised more than her fair share of money, led organizations, and now as a program officer with the Ford Foundation, has developed its U.S. Disability Rights Program strategy, the first of its kind at Ford. I know you want to learn as much as you can from her, so I'm going to shut my pie hole and let's get to this. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. My guest today is Rebecca Coakley. She is the program officer for the Ford Foundation's first ever disability rights program. Her resume is long and impressive. It includes a tour of duty at the Center for American Progress, where she built out a progressive policy platform. My favorite thing is that she stewarded a campaign that resulted in an unprecedented 12 presidential candidates developing disability policy platforms. Mike drop. Prior to her work at CAP, she also served as the executive director for the National Council on Disabilities. She is a three-time presidential appointee, serving in key policy roles in the Department of Ed, Department of Health and Human Services, and she also oversaw diversity and inclusion efforts for the Obama administration. I know you want to hear what she has to say. Now, Rebecca and I go way back. We fundraised for Obama together in his first run for office. It was, and indeed, a very exciting time. And now, imagine my good fortune. Rebecca and I are now neighbors 
here in the Garden State of New Jersey. She has relocated here to Montclair for her gig at Ford. Rebecca, welcome to Montclair, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Joan, and I am so excited that we are neighbors here in Montclair. (laughs) So you have been on the grantee side of the nonprofit world for quite a long time. I want to hear about the switch. What led to it? Was it part of your professional trajectory? Was it an opportunity to live closer to me? Like what what was really going on there for you? You know, I had planned sort of post leaving the Obama administration. I took it I took some significant time off. The day after Trump was elected president, um I looked at my GS pay scale calendar and figured out at what point in the next fiscal year I would have 10 weeks of paid vacation. And I walked into the office and said, July 7th is my last day. And like had that as my North Star. I was like, I just have to make it to July 7th. I will make it to July 7th. I love that. Um, And then I took six months off and did absolutely nothing. Like really nothing? uh, I did nothing. I read. I didn't do any speaking gigs. I hung out with my kids. I watched a whole bunch of series. Like I rewatched The Wire. I rewatched Alias. I, you know, (laughs) just like, because I realized like I had been, I had, you know, I think I got my first job when I was like 16 and had always worked. And so it was like, I have time to just sit and breathe and figure out what I want to do next. When Rebecca Vallis called me from the Center for American Progress and said, you won't believe it. After all this time, I've talked Mira Tandon into letting me open up a disability policy shop, and I want you to come and run it. And to be able then to go to CAP and build something from scratch, and coming from the disability space, we were so used to being resource starved, like to being somewhere at CAP where it's like, we have a TV studio, we have a communications team whose job it is to like write our press releases, we have folks whose job it is to make reports look pretty, like that just, like it felt... It felt indulgent, <laughs> you know, coming from a community where literally like it was always popsicle sticks and duct tape and who can be the best MacGyver in a minute to like pull some miracle off at the last, at the last 10 seconds totally. of an episode. And so to be in a space where, you know, we could really do that. And I loved being at CAP. CAP was so much fun, you know, and as we were winding down and, and the Biden administration was coming in. You know, I had worked on I had worked with every presidential campaign, and to be real, there wasn't anything I was excited about. Like in terms of, there was a lot of phone calls about whether or not I was going to go back into the administration from a number of year and my mutual friends, and they were like, "Do you want to come back in?" And I was like, "There's, I had all the cool jobs. I was President Obama's diversity officer in the first term. Like, wow. you're not going to get anything cooler than that." Um, you know, I ran or impactful agency. for that matter. Yeah, it's like I ran a federal agency. You know, with some of the other candidates, there were things that we had sort of talked about and battered about and been like, oh, that'd be cool to do that. I could see, I could see building something somewhere there. But it was clear that that wasn't in the cards with this administration. And some folks from Ford called and said, you know, we've really enjoyed working with you, you know, while they were building out their internal disability work and some of the the grant making across other programs, we had developed a, a much more atypical, well, I felt it was atypical because I had only ever before CAP gotten federal dollars. Uh And so like there was such, the federal government has such, there's such a formal sense of your relationship as a grantee and a funder for a multitude of reasons. 
And then to be in a nonprofit space where like, no, my funders would call me and be like, hey, we're thinking about trying this thing. What, what do you think would happen if we tried this thing? Or we're, you know, we have, we're, we're pulling in a group of organizations to, to talk about race, money, and politics. Who are the disability groups we should have at the table? And to be in a much more like collegial partnership, like really like thought partnership on this work. And they, they called and they said, you know, we're going to create our own, you know, separate funding stream and we would like you to fund it. And can you, would you consider this? And I was like, absolutely. Um, and so then there you have it. And there you have it. And I hear somebody in the background, don't I? It's actually fine. We like to hear people in the background, so it's okay. Yes, you can have a muffin. Go take one of your sister's muffins. <laughs> You know, I interviewed somebody once who got room service at a hotel and we like, had we had poached eggs together. So it all works. That's awesome. It's all good. It's all good. So how did you approach developing a strategy from sort of from the get-go, right? I mean, it's it's in some ways might might actually be easier than than sort of adapting one that already existed, right? Definitely. It was so much easier in that we didn't have I didn't inherit anybody's issues or baggage, like to come in and be able to be like, we can build this from jump and to not only be able to build it from jump, but to center the community and how we funded it. And so what we did was we just pulled the community together and said, what do you want in a strategy? What should this look like? What does it mean to make something that's true to our values? Is that the muffin? Yes, that's the muffin. (laughs) And, And who needs to be at the table? And so it was really great because For example, we pulled in people who traditionally are not listened to even in the disability space. We pulled in people with significant levels of support needs. We pulled in people who use nonverbal means of communication, so like who use augmentative communication boards to talk. We pulled in people with Down syndrome and intellectual disabilities. We pulled in people that were formerly incarcerated. And we really wanted to say like, so if we were to start from scratch, like what, what should it look like? And so what? we wow. had, we had like three roundtable discussions and then I had roughly 150 individual stakeholder calls with people just to be like, Hey, we had these roundtables. This is what we're thinking about. What do you think? Does this, does this make sense? Or who, and also who else should we be talking to? And it was, it, it sounds really radical, but I think in many ways, you know, the disability, I mean, the, the phrase nothing about us without us, though it's been co-opted by every movement, has its roots actually in the disability anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. That's interesting. And, you know, and to us, it's more than just lip service. It's a, it's part of our cultural nuance. And to be able to say, so what would it look like to build a strategy that is completely informed and driven by the people that it should impact? Fantastic. Uh, so I'm... I- I know people are are anxious to hear you answer some of the the questions I promised I would ask you, but I want to ask one other, which is Ford is a big place, and I, I found I find myself wondering, how, like, how does it work? Sort of, how much autonomy do you have? You know, I I always wondered of like. Is the program officers, how much are they decision makers? How much are they gatekeepers? Sort of a little, a little color commentary on that before we dig into the life of a program officer. You know, Ford is a really big place. It also will often be, you know, such a have such an expanded influence in in philanthropy. 
And just, I, I often find myself thinking about, I think about privilege like a checkbook. And how are those of us in positions of privilege, like spending our like small p uh, political privilege in terms of opening doors for people? How, like, what can we be doing to be more transparent, to, to offer more opportunities in? And I think, you know, I've been really lucky in that this is such a new space. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of content expertise. And so I benefit from, you know, the benefit of disability never being at the table is I have never, I have rarely had a job where my expertise has been questioned in terms of like, this is what we should do versus this is what we shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Because since we've never been there, there's nobody else in the room to say, well, back in 1973, when we were doing X, you know, before the ADA, like we tried this thing and it didn't work. And it's like, no, you didn't. We've never been. There. I mean, quite literally prior to Ford embracing this work starting in about 2016, Ford had only ever made one major grant to a disability organization. And it was back in the 80s. And it came with a post-it note that said, don't ask us for money ever again. The only place to go was up, right? Yeah. And I mean, the benefit of that is, I mean, you're trusted to be the expert in your content area. And and I think that's what I very much appreciate, you know, even to the point of, and, and Darren, and I joke about this frequently, where people will stop him, obviously, on the street all the time and ask for money because they know who he is. And he always will defer to the program officers and be like, well, you know, if it's disability, you need to talk to Rebecca. And if she says yes, then that's great. But if she says no, like she makes the call. And to be able to have a relationship with your CEO who absolutely has, you know, has his trust in you and has your back because there are many times that I'll say no to people and they'll reach out and his and I will see the emails where it's like, thank you so much for reaching out to me. It's so nice to see you. As I let you know before, Rebecca, the buck stops with Rebecca. And it's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty dreamy, actually. Okay, so let's get down to some some brass tacks here for um, for listeners. What are the core elements you look for in determining whether or not you're going to advocate for a grantee? What, what, do you, what are you looking for? I look for something new. I look for something exciting. Whether, and it doesn't have to necessarily be like a new idea, but a new take on, on an old problem. Like, what are you bringing to the table? The second thing I really look for and is I want to make sure that gender and race are centered along with disability. Like, I don't believe that there's anything to be gained by continuing to separate how we think about social justice framings. And so I, you know, I am the person that now it's gotten to the point where when I get pitched, people are like, and this is what we're doing around women. And this is what we're doing around race, because they know that I'm going to ask that question. Right. Um, because to me, you know, you can't talk about disability without talking about Flint, Michigan, and African-American students who've been drinking poisoned water for, you know, 3,000 plus days. You mm-hmm. can't talk about, you know, postpartum depression without talk as a disability, without obviously including a gender lens. You know, we can't be having this conversation about Roe today without having a conversation around you know, how the disability community has been treated as a football by both the pro-life and the pro-choice movements. And what do we really need to do differently to have the conversation on bodily autonomy that we still haven't really had as a country? And I enjoy that. I mean, I like being known as the program officer 
that is going to push you to do more than just check the box on disability. This isn't about, you know, as I said to somebody recently, this isn't about charity. This is about justice. Yeah. And there is no justice as long as we're like, oh, the, the race aisle is over there. You know, the gender aisle is over there. And for low income folks, go to the back. No, like to me, the only way we're going to get the results we really need to have and the only way we're going to see the change in the society that we want to see is by coming at it with a much more comprehensive view of what we mean by justice and who we mean as being impacted. So smart. I want to talk about, and perhaps in your unit, you handle these differently, but so you get, you get past an application and you want to learn more, right? And so obviously back in the, you know, before times there were site visits. I don't know how site visits are handled in your area. When you think about what the intent is of whatever a site visit looks like for you, how do you find out what's really going on? I mean, I hosted enough site visits to know, first of all, I'm a fairly transparent, authentic person, and I ran a pretty good shop, right? So I didn't, but but I'd always felt like it was a dog and pony show. And I always wondered if the people were really asking the questions they ought to be asking. So I, I, I'm always intrigued about this one. You know, I haven't gotten, because of COVID, I haven't gotten to do that many. I haven't done any in-person site visits since starting at Ford because I started during the pandemic, starting to plan what they're going to look like. You know, I, I'm one of those people, I talk to everyone. And also as a little person, <laughs> people always talk to me. Yep. Um, you know, and I can just I, tell you, I could tell my listeners, Rebecca talks to everyone. That's how you get to know Rebecca. And that's why Rebecca knows everyone, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I remember talking to somebody recently and and we were having a conversation around what was happening at an organization. And I was like, well, you know, I googled them on Twitter and I saw what the Twitter conversation was like about them. You know, I looked at, you know, I I found out what some of the younger staff were working on. Like I always love to talk to younger staff because they're often not in the dog and pony show. So like I'll wander around and be like the aimless lost, you know, program officer and be like, Hey, where's the bathroom? <laughs> you know, be like, who are you? What do you do here? And that to me is like just a natural way of like, who isn't, who isn't in the room for the dog and pony show, you know? And I think really like asking those questions and being like, what is it you like? Like, what is, what's really cool? What have you worked on? You know, I mean, that's how I found out that the ACLU's disability program had, you know, African-American deaf lawyers working on policing reform. You know, you poke around, like I'm the person that like likes to poke around a bit and be like, all right, like who isn't in this room and who do I need to go find? Like, where's the, where's the person in the office that has the coolest shoes? Let me go off and like track them down, you know, or, or let me find the person that's got like the funky tchotchkes. Like who, where's like, for me, it's also Where's the nerd? Where's the person with the Wonder Woman poster that I can go and like stand in their doorway and be like, yeah, you know, one of my best friends is Gail Simone, who's been one of the most, you know, avid writers of Wonder Woman for the last 20 years. Like, what's your favorite Wonder Woman comic? Like, I, you know, Lester Bangs used to talk about when he was writing for Rolling Stone, he used to talk about the currency of the uncool. Mm-hmm. And how like how important it is. And like I am super nerdy. I work at Ford, but I remember when being super nerdy wasn't cool. And so, you know, my brain is full of comic book trivia and Star Wars Lego sets and like random stuff. And I can find something to talk to anybody about. And I will, because I think 
you know, for so as you said, so many of these things are dog and pony shows. So many of them things can be rehearsed. Like I want to hear why do you get up in the morning and come into this office right at a time where people aren't going into work right now? Like what excites you? What do you wish you were doing? What is on your bucket list of like when I came to Ford, I had a bucket list that, on the back of a notebook that said, you know, 20 cool things I want to fund at the Ford Foundation, you know, and I've gotten to about 15 of them so far. That's um, fantastic. So and, here's a question. I talk to people and ask them, it's like, what are the 15 things you want to do when you're, while you're in this job? At what point? Uh, what a great question yeah. that, uh, what a great question that is. I actually do a lot of leadership transition work and I'm like, what are the 15 things you want to do in the next two and a half years before your expiration date? Right. Exactly. And try to get them to focus on that. Right. So first of all, you and I both know a prospective grantee at Ford who has a Wonder Woman collection in Columbus, Ohio, and she is one of the coolest and most unusual people you will ever meet. But anyway, Wonder woman made me think um, about Nancy Smith. Do you ever actually think about, this is, I, I think I told you this, I want to write a piece for the Chronicle of Philanthropy to say, hey, program officers, would you meet with the board chair and the executive director and learn about that partnership so you can find out whether that other engine of that twin engine jet actually works? And I, I wonder, what do you think of that idea? The disability community is so small that there are many times that I know the ED very well and I know the board chair very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and while I haven't had a lot of conversations with them together, I will often ask them, it's like, how are things going over at X? Like, how are, like, what is the working relationship like? Like, do you feel very collaborative? You know, what is, how does the board weigh in? You know, what is, what does, do you feel like you have a healthy relationship between the board and the staff? You know, and I've been a board member of some great organizations. And I, you know, the last thing I ever want to do is be that board member that when they walk in the door, the the email goes out to everybody on staff, usually from a admin staff or being like X person is here, close your doors. Um, And here everybody close the door because that board member is a pain in the butt. I often think of how can board members, what's the value add for board members? How can they amplify what an organization is doing? How are they? In this moment, especially, I think between the pandemic, we have a pandemic, we have a war, we have everything happening on row, you know, we have the most recent events in Buffalo. It is a rough time for the social yeah. justice nonprofit space. So how can board boards lean in to support staff in this moment? Like mm-hmm. staff feel burned out. Staff are fried. They're like a deep fried Twinkie at the Iowa State Fair that's been rolled in hay and stepped on a few times. So like, I often like to ask my EVs, like, how is your staff lifting y'all up? Like, what is your staff doing? How are they providing air cover? What does the support look like from your board, you know, in this moment when really like, I worry about the staff capacity how are staff breathing? How are staff feeling in this moment? Yeah, there's a lot. There's so many factors. And then we have leadership transitions, right? We have boomers retiring, which is a serious trend. Brand new leaders often following long tenured folks. And because I do a lot of coaching in that space, I know that can be really turbulent waters. And so how do you think about funding an organization where there's been a leadership transition? Because I I know that lots of individual donors will often say, 
I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna wait and see. I'm gonna sort of see how this whole leadership thing shakes out before I decide if I'm gonna renew or upgrade. You as a program officer, an organization you're funding, a leadership transition, how do you think about that? I get excited because I really feel like there is an opportunity as a funder to invest in somebody new's vision. And also understanding the privilege that Ford has in the space. You know, for a lot of our, our organizations, when they've gone through a leadership transition, there is that hesitancy of funders. And I know that if I jump in and I'm bold about it and I am investing in that CE, that new CEO or ED's leadership, yep. that others will follow suit. Um, because nothing is worse than being a new ED and immediately having to jump in on the fundraising thing and having to feel like you're barely treading water and trying to run the organization at the same time. You know, and I think especially in the disability community, as we've started to see not only the transition generationally, but also a abject demand for increased diversity within our CEOs, more people yes. of color, more LGBT folks, that I also have a responsibility to do that. Like, it's not just about addressing the equity issues of the last couple of years, but it's about actually how do we commit to, how do we commit in saying we're doubling down on leaders of color with disabilities in this space? Because you and I have also seen the cases where a person of color has been brought into an organization and been expected to solve all the problems. And I'm sure there's, you and I have case studies of some of the same people that we've watched this happen to. Way too many. And they haven't been supported and funders haven't come to the table. And then they're looked at as an abject failure. And I refuse to do that. Like I have a, if I want to see my community shift, I have to be invested in that. And so what it also means is that for some of the new EDs, it's more handholding. It's more coaching as a funder. It's, you know, they're scared of Ford. And so I'm like, let me walk you through what our application looks like. I promise you it's not scary. I've done them before. And I can talk you through like some of the nuance. It's also like, who, who's mentoring you? Like, and it's, and sometimes it's, let me find you a mentor in the disability space if, that, if you're trying to figure out community dynamics. But in some cases, it's, let me find you just a really good ED mentor, right. you know? And so let me reach out to some of my other grantees. Let me reach out to my networks and find somebody else. And sometimes it's helpful to have a voice that's not from your community. I mean, I know for me, being mentored by somebody, you actually wrote a case study about Kevin Jennings, Kevin Jennings yes. and Eliza Byard both of whom are great friends. I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for Kev and, and the work that I got to do and get in trouble with him at the Department of Education. And his most powerful role as a mentor to me was always as an ED, not at, you know, not being in the disability space, but understanding complicated community dynamics as he saw in the LGBT community. Being Correct. able to be like, oh my gosh, my community is driving me up the wall. What do you do in these moments? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of our young ED, younger EDs, they haven't had the exposure to different types of mentors or to people with different skill sets. And so I really feel that that's part of my job as a funder who's looking up, like my investing is not just about scaling up organizations. It's about scaling up the community. And so I have to be thinking about it as an ecosystem in terms of like, what's the energy? What are the people I need to bring into the space? And what is the, what can the system hold? Yeah. And what is too much? The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. 
To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. I, I want folks to know that the smart, energized human being that you are listening to is Rebecca Coakley, and she is the lead on Ford, the Ford Foundation's first disability rights project. Her resume, which you will find on our show notes, goes on, but she has sat at pretty much every seat at the disability rights table and the nonprofit table, often the same. And she and I go way back and we're talking about what being a program officer is really all about and what there is, what that relationship is really like between the program officer and the organization that is funded. So riddle me this, Wonder Woman. (laughs) The ideal relationship between a program officer and a grantee, let's say you score the grant. Some people think, okay, all right, so I go away. I do my homework. I get an A plus on the end when my report is due. I hand it in. I get an A plus. I get more money. I'm thinking that that's not the correct answer, at least not the answer according to Rebecca Coakley. How's it work for you? I love hearing from my grantees, you know, and so I like hearing from them what's working, what isn't working. I like hearing from them where there are problems. You know, they're on the ground. And so their perspective of what the issues are, are much more real world than sometimes ours are at the Ford Foundation. You know, for example, a little over a year ago, I got reached out to by one of my, one of my prospective grantees, someone we were in early conversations with, uh, even before we were moving money. And they said, you know, you need to be watching these Down syndrome selective abortion bans. They're like, mm. keep an eye on these. They're like, they're testing the waters. Something bigger is coming. And it was just like, you're not wrong, you know, very clearly. I mean, when I was a grantee, we were watching the deregulation of the nursing home industry right. um, prior to the pandemic. And we're at CAP, we were watching Justice and Aging's data table talking about where deregulation was happening. And it was like, oh, they just do, they got rid of infection control standards at nursing homes. Like they no longer have independent infection control specialists. Well, that's, that's a bad thing. And so in the disability community, we call it being a disabled oracle because we're like, oh, we always see the stuff before it happens. And I do think about my grantees a lot that way. I, I trust them to be the experts in what it is that they're working on. And I want them to feel like they can pick up the phone and call me. I just had a grantee call me a couple of weeks ago and say that they were recently doxxed by some people that are opposing the work that they're doing. And so they were like, we had to get hotels for our staff because it wasn't safe for them to be at their homes. Somebody put their entire team's uh, addresses on the internet. And as a funder, I want to know that. I want to think about like, what are the things that we can do in terms of moving resources to help people, to help our folks? You know, if in the disability space, so many of our grantees have had COVID, so many of them have lost people to COVID. As I tell my other funder partners at Ford, where they're like, everyone's going back to the office. And I was like, who? And they're like, our grantees. And I was like, not my grantees. My grantees can't go to the pharmacy without being afraid that the person in line in front of them has COVID. Like my people are still dying. Right. And so I think that coming into this role during a pandemic has also, it has eased some of the trust building because we're in a moment of great crisis. 
And at the same time, I really feel like it's required me to be much more strategic in thinking about how do I support my grantees like in this moment, because it's not just day to day for our folks, you know, our folks uh-huh. are, our folks are still dying. Our folks are, you know, I had one grantee who the hospital, she went in for a flu shot and the hospital tried to confiscate her ventilator and give it to somebody with COVID and like reached out to me like two days later and was like, so you might see that I'm suing this hospital. And I just want you to understand that it has nothing <laughs> to do with my job. But, and I was like, no, I want to know this because mm-hmm. You know, these are things that how can Ford use its privilege as we're talking about what philanthropy needs to be doing in this moment to give a real life sense of like how our grantees are being impacted. You don't know if if your experts don't tell you, right? You cannot be the smartest, most strategic grant maker unless you actually tap into the sector expertise of your grantees. It's just so obvious to me. And so you make the case so eloquently. And it just is, is mind boggling to me that it feel it often feels so very Wizard of Oz like, and I don't know what the genesis of that is, but boy, if we have if we have something to do with busting that myth, then it will have been a very good day at the office indeed, Rebecca. Um, well, I think that's why it's so important to hire from the communities that yes. are represented. It's like you should know your people. Your people should be able to you know, find something in common with you and reach out to you. And it is so easy to get caught up in what someone's resume looks like. Like I'm a community college grad. I went to UC Santa Cruz. My mascot is the fighting banana slug. I rep it hard, (laughs) you know? And I used to joke about that at the White House. There were two of us that were community college grads. And my colleague, Greg Gershuni, the other one is now a VP of Red Aspen. And so he and I joke about it all the time. We're like, how did we end up in these jobs in these places where we're doing this thing? And like, not even imposter syndrome, but like, and how, but instead, like, how do we bring more people like that? Yeah, that was just going to say, that's the thing is how do you convert imposter syndrome into that kind of energy? I think that that's exactly right. I don't want listeners to miss out on the story that you told me. I loved that Darren Walker, when you arrived, asked you, as a little person, what can Ford do to create a greater sense of belonging for you? And, and I, want you, I would love for you to tell folks about the conversation. And if it, if it involves Lin-Manuel Miranda, so be it. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny when I think about coming to Ford because it has been... It is so surreal in a multitude of ways. And I think that, you know, I've been, I I have had a history of having jobs that were surreal in in really interesting ways. When I first came to Ford, actually, even before I came to Ford, when I was a grantee and they would invite me up, they were in the middle of remodeling their building. Yes. And uh, they called and said, what would, what would your ideal bathroom look like? And I remember kind of laughing and was like, my ideal bathroom. And they were like, yeah, like, what would a bathroom look like that would work for you? That would like, that you would be excited about. And (laughs) as a person with dwarfism, I was like, let me think about that. And I like expensive purses. I do. And I was like, my ideal bathroom would be a bathroom where I don't have to put my purse on the floor. 
And I remember Darren and Catherine Townsend both laughing and then being like, what? And I was like, (laughs) I have expensive purses. I like expensive shoes too, but it doesn't matter for the shoes. But like an expensive purse, I walk into a bathroom at an organization and I judge if I do, I have to like, I walk into the stall. Is there a low hook on the back of the stall door? Or do I have to put my really expensive purse on the floor? Yeah, And I was like, so I wouldn't have to put my purse on the floor. And they're like, okay, and what else? And I was like, I wouldn't have to jump on the sink and dump my boobs in the sink to wash my hands. <laughs> and they were just like, we were on the phone at the time and I know they were dying. And they were like, what? And I was like, the amount of times I have to like run and high jump to like wash my hands. And uh, like, I go, and I could be, I was like, I ran into this at the White House. I was the president's diversity officer. And I was like, how is this pregnant little person going to like wash their hands in a sink that doesn't work for them? And I don't want to have to carry around a Rubbermaid stool everywhere I go. You know, I was like, can I see have a mirror where I can see how I fully look, you know, before I walk out of the restroom? Can I have a paper towel holder that I don't have to jump up and like look like I'm doing jumping jacks? Like I have a Peloton, I can do that at home. But like, like, what does it mean for me not to get water all over my shirt? before I go into a meeting as, you know, as, as a, as a grantee. And so, um, they built a little person restroom and I take a selfie there every time I'm at the office. (laughs) And I'm like, I take a selfie by the side and I was like, this is me and my little person restroom, you know? And I was talking to somebody today because they were talking about the office setup. And I was like, you can't take me away from my bathroom. And they were like, what? And I was like, I have a bathroom. And they were like, oh, there's a bathroom on our floor. I was like, no, 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 no. You are your bathroom. bathroom. Yeah. I was like, I want to host a reception in my bathroom because it's so big. Well, you hosted a reception for Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was absolutely fascinated, right? He said, can I see it? I I showed Lin-Manuel the bathroom. Yes. When I was at the foundation and we were having an event, he was like, so what do you do here? I was like, oh, I'm a grantee. And he's like, this is an amazing building. I was like, yes, there's a dwarf bathroom. Um, You know, and it is to be in a place where that's what they think about. Like, they're like, what would it, you know, it, and, and. Right. I love to it. ask like, you I, what would yeah. what would it, what would have to be true for you to feel like you belong here? Like, how I hard have, is it to ask that question? You know, and I think about when I when I used to interview people in the Obama administration, the first question I would always ask that was a question one of my I heard one of my interns ask somebody one time, which is, "What was your call to service? Like, mm-hmm. what in your life has compelled you to 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 dedicate a life to service, and what does that mean?" for you in the context of working in this administration. And I still think about that question, That's a, uh, yep. you know, because I, with my grantees, it's a question I ask many of them. I'm like, why are you called? Like, when were you called to this work? And why were you called to this work? Huh. You know, because I think that like your, your, your superhero origin story, you know, Wonder Woman's superhero origin story being molded from the clay by her mother, because there were no babies on Damascara. Like, what what was that moment for you? And and I do think that organizations, especially in light of you know this the the great resignation and all of these things, like keeping good workers isn't hard. No, it shouldn't be hard. But have you asked them, like, what would make you feel like you belong in this space? Yeah, it's it's so smart. 
So I, I would be remiss if I did not just take a few minutes at the end of this conversation just to get your observations about the current state of disability rights, what you see as priorities as you move forward in your role, sort of what are the gaps, how can you, you know, so w w what's the landscape look like from your vantage point? Um, because I think our 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 grant, sorry, our listeners, I think would really benefit from having that having that viewpoint from you. You know, the thing I think is so powerful about disability is how it's defined in the ADA. It's any mental or physical impairment which impacts a, a person's activities of daily living, and a record or history of such an impairment. And so it varies person to person. You know, people look at me and they see my dwarfism as, as probably the thing that is my biggest, my quote unquote biggest disability. And for me, it's my migraines. You know, I think mm -hmm. the, the, the beauty of this work is that, you know, it is thinking about in this moment, how do we reshape the disability rights and justice space to be welcoming and inclusive for 20 million newly disabled people because of long COVID. Right. And I remember growing up in the Bay Area in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, when my mom ran a disabled student center at a college and my dad ran a center for independent living. And I remember folks in the disability community saying to our, our family with HIV, well, it's on them to find us. We're here and those folks just have to find us. And it was the same treatment with, with folks that came back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And we lost, my parents lost so many friends to HIV, especially in the early days. I remember when my trips to the ice skating rink were preempted by funerals in Colma. And I remember asking my parents, why are we going to another funeral? And my parents saying, nobody deserves to be buried without people standing for them. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what we do. This is what we do as a community. And so when I think about what the disability community has to do differently moving forward, it's not doing that. It's doing the opposite. How do we take this moment of this you know, global pandemic to reframe how we think about disability, to reframe, to sort of rebrand the ADA and move it from a tool of compliance, which yes, civil rights compliance and, and, is, and enforcement is really important, but also to one of, of success. How do we change the conversation around reasonable accommodations to not just one of what do we have to do for you because you work here, to what are the tools and resources that you need that can make you successful? And how can we embrace that? And so I think COVID is a lens on all issues of disability in this moment, whether it be public education, you know, both on the, on the, you know, for kids that have acquired COVID, for teachers that have acquired COVID, but also for the fact that our kids are grieving, our kids are struggling, like mental health is a really big thing in this moment and will be going forward. This is the, this is the era defining moment of this generation. We don't know. Yes. We don't know. You know, and I think that we don't you know, even know. We don't know the half of it. Figuring out how we make that disconnect between disability and poverty. The United States exists in such a way that as great as the New Deal was, it codified the state of poverty for disabled people. You know, through things like the creation of the subminimum wage, through the Fair Labor Standards Act, through things such as asset limits that say if you are a person with a disability. You can't have more than $2,000 in a checking account or you lose your health insurance. That, you know, if you're a kid in the state of Illinois and you get 16 hours of home care and then you get accepted into Harvard with a full ride, 
you'll have to turn it down because Massachusetts will look at you and only give you four hours. So like we can't move. Our folks can't change states. I mean, even in cases of natural disasters, if you know, kids, people that were displaced by Katrina all those years ago and sent to Texas, they had different Medicaid rates. And so what does it mean when the government has decided that because you are disabled, you have to be poor? And that every decision that you make is grounded in the fact that you live in a state of codified poverty and you can't make any changes. You can't get married. I mean, we still have a marriage penalty for people on social security where they can't get married without losing their health care. This is ridiculous. And I don't think most people realize just how much it infringes on your ability to live and your family's ability to live. And that to me is like the big takeaway of this work is like, until we can disconnect disability and poverty, until they stop being an Ouroboros, nothing's going to change. We are, we are actually out of time and there's so many takeaways. I just, I, you have spoken from start to finish about intersectionality. And I I really just want to just name that and highlight it for people. I think that it is what has made you the voice you have become. And um, I have so appreciated both the practical and the the strategic level of thinking that you have brought to our conversation today. And I am extremely grateful that you took time from providing muffins and San Pellegrino to your children uh, to join me today. And I just wanted to say thank you for joining me and thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much, Joan. It really was a pleasure to be here today. And that's it for me for today. So thanks for joining me. And uh, as always, thanks for the work that you do. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.